sale already. Has anyone been to Coles? 27th of December. I personally love that because I love hot cross buns. But I, I wonder if Coles and Woolworths need a refreshment of the Christian calendar. It's a fair way out uh, between Christmas and Easter, but nonetheless. Of course, the biggest change uh, that most of us have at this time of year is around resolutions. I don't know if you guys um, have been involved with resolutions yet. If you haven't yet, just wait, you will. Um, resolutions, of course, are where we resolve to make some sort of external change to ourselves, to our habits, to our routines, to start something, to stop something, in order to produce some level of you know, long-lasting transformation. Several years ago, my father got given a Fitbit for Christmas. Uh, if you, do you know what a Fitbit is? It's the old sort of Apple Watch, but it's more useless. Uh, it just it counts your steps and then sends you a little, you know, smiley emoji if you hit 10,000 steps or something. So my dad got this. Now that's amusing on its own, as um, my dad, who's the most honest man I've ever met, is also the most unfit man I have ever met in my life. I, I'm fairly certain Velcro shoes for adults were invented for him. Um, he is a man who I've seen him once sitting there watching television. Um, he's flicking on the channel. He ends up accidentally on some sort of um, Arabic channel. Uh, he drops the remote control, and rather than get up to get it, he keeps watching the Arabic TV show. He can't understand anything. He'll just rather do that. So my dad got this Fitbit, uh, and he, for the first, you know, he loved it. He was walking around like he was an Olympic walker. You know, he was just, oh, look at Kennedy's steps, Kennedy's steps. And that last, I mean, it was amazing, transformation. It lasted at least two or three days. It was really incredible to watch. But we came to visit him a week later. And as I said, very, very honest man. And yet I observed him from the corner of my eye when he sat down, assumed the position to watch television. There was his arm down there watching TV <laughs> like that. He wasn't deliberately sinning. His body was sinning for him, you know? <laughs> Resolutions, man, they are very funny. There is a big problem when it comes to resolutions. What is it? The big problem. They don't work. Statistically, the average resolution will last eight days. So if you've got one, seven days to go. Just keep with it. <laughs> seven days. Eight days. Why? The reason is because we don't have transformation and long-term change by producing and, 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 and um making huge declarations of little changes that we're going to make externally to ourselves. It's just not how we work. Um, it's very, very difficult indeed to, to see long-term transformation by saying, I'm going to stop this or stop. That's why diets are always prone for, for failure often. New fitness plans. Because um, what we need is something much, much deeper than just, oh, I'm going to start or stop something. We need a radical change to take place. I want to say, it's not just um, the normal type of resolutions that we attempted into as Christians, though. Uh, if you're a Christian, you'll know all about the Christian resolutions that we make at this time of year. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. Has anyone started that already? Good luck. I'm going to read the Bible in a week, all of it. In all seriousness, I'm going to stop looking at those things. I'm going to Fresh start. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to do this, that, the other. But again, what happens? We're destined to fail. Now, here's what I want to say tonight, and I want you to, uh, I want you to hear this and hold me to it, because this is what we're going to be speaking about tonight. So here's what I want to say. Only God can produce transformation that lasts across a lifetime, across generations and into eternity. Only God can offer, more than offer, produce transformation that lasts. And it's the transformation you most need. Now, how does he do that? How does that work? It's because the transformation God offers is not about what you or I do. 
resolutions and working at doing the outside in. It's not about, that's not what God does. The transformation God offers is not about what you do, but it's only understood when you realize it's about what you see. It's not through action that you'll find that continual process of transformation that you're most looking for, but through sight, through how you see things. Now, to explain what I'm talking about tonight, we're going to be looking at just the first few verses of this incredible book of the Bible. And if you haven't read Philippians, can I just do yourself a favor, read it uh, over the next few weeks. It's it's a wonderful book of the Bible. Um, Now, this is a one-off sermon. We're not starting a new series in Philippians, so I'm not going to go into too much detail of the context. But I just want you to grab hold of one thing, one piece of knowledge to know as we look at it. Philippians is written by a man called Paul. And Paul was the great apostle. He wrote much of the New Testament, a man of huge esteem, huge influence, huge um, uh, prominence in the Christian world. And he is writing this letter to a church he planted 10 years previously in the Greek town of Philippi, just of regular non-Jewish Christians. So you've got this great Paul writing this letter to these Christians in Philippi. Here's what I want you to notice as we look at these first few verses. And it's only a few verses tonight that we're looking at. What I want you to notice is what Paul tells us about sight. You with me? Did you catch that? What Paul tells us about how we see, how he sees people, how he sees life, and then how he points us to live in the light of the sight that we have. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, keep it open uh, in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one afterwards. We'd love to give you one. If you do have one and didn't bring it, what a great resolution. Bring your Bible to church. (laughs) <laughs> It'd be great to do so. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what I want you to notice. How does Paul see himself? How does Paul see the Christians he's writing to? You ready? Okay, here we go. I'm going to read it out. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Two things to notice. Number one. Paul identifies himself how? As a servant of Christ Jesus. He identifies the Philippians as God's people made holy in Christ Jesus. When Paul identifies himself, there's a million ways he could have done so. The apostle, the the, the preacher, the pastor, the church planner, the author, all these type of things. But the primary identification he gives himself is who he is in relation to Jesus. The Philippians, they're the same. He doesn't mention their geography, their demography, their talents, their skills, their background, their ongoing relationship with Paul, their generosity. None of those things. Instead, he identifies them primarily as who they are in relation to Christ Jesus. They're God's holy people in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing are those terms he uses. What does he call himself? A servant of Christ Jesus. Now, um, that's an interesting word. And the reason it's interesting is that actually... In the original language, this is written in Greek. Um, The word he uses there is doulos. And doulos does not actually mean servant. Does anyone know what the word doulos means? It means slave, not servant. Now, it's not a mistranslation because the point remains that servants and slaves both serve and so on and so forth. It's been changed, though. They don't use slave there because of modern Western sensibilities, because of the horror of slavery over a couple of thousand years, hundreds of years uh, recently. But it is worth saying, of course, that even though there is great similarities between um, being a servant and being a slave, there are also huge differences. Servants can quit. Servants are paid. Slaves, they are owned. 
Listen to me. They are owned people, possessions. It's a horrible thing. Slaves belong to another person. So what is Paul saying as he identifies himself? I am a slave of Jesus Christ. In what sense is Paul a slave? In every sense. Body, mind, soul. I belong to Jesus. I'm his. The second thing is how he identifies the Philippians. Look what he says here. It's an interesting expression. God's holy people in Christ. Holiness means something being separate and dedicated to God. Holiness is what every Christian is given when we trust and repent through God's work in our hearts and what Jesus has done by dying and rising from the dead. We are clothed in the holiness of Jesus. We stand before God. If you're a Christian here today, you are holy before the Lord. And look at, uh, look at chapter 1, verse 6. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You are holy before God now, if you're a Christian, and you always will be this side of glory. You are holy in position before God. That's who you are. However, another bit of a language thing. It's a bit of a mouthful, God's holy people in Christ Jesus. There is actually a word, just one word, that summarizes that whole expression that we used to use instead of that jumble of words. Does anyone know what that word is? Saint. Saints in Christ Jesus. Now, don't miss this. The reason they don't use the word saint there anymore is a little bit like slavery, but worse. We don't use the word saint there because over the past few hundred years, the idea of sainthood has been so destroyed, so erroneously used by people calling themselves Christians, that when we hear it now, we always, well, many people think of something that the Bible never ever says. When people use the word saint, what they often think of are super duper Christians. You know, the best ones, oh my goodness, incredible Christians. The idea, of course, is that there's a hierarchy of Christianity, a hierarchy of holiness, and those saints, ooh, those are the ones. And of course, some people would even say that you pray to those, those super-duper Christians. And if a miracle happens, we have the authority to say that is a saint. My dear friends, hear me. The Bible never says anything of the sort. That is a grievous blasphemy. That is not true. That is not what the Bible says. Do not Pray to a man or a woman that is wrong. So what's a saint? Well, have a look. A saint is anyone who's been made holy in Christ Jesus, which is who? All Christians. So take a step back with me right now. What are we learning here? Just from this opening remark, Paul is saying, I'm a slave. Slave Paul, writing to the saints at Philippi, not St. Paul right into the slaves at Philippi, the other way around. But don't miss this. He's not saying, I'm a slave, you're saints, I'm beneath you, you're super duper, I'm down the bottom. No, no, no. He's making the claims about himself and themselves. They are both slaves and saints. Now, what about us? 2023. Well, let's start this year off right. Let me give you some great news. If you here tonight are truly a Christian, a born-again, spirit-filled believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you bear the privileged title of slave. Congratulations. The Bible actually says every single person on this earth is a slave. Before you're a Christian, you're a slave to your sinful nature, that evil, wicked dictator that drags you away from God. However, when we become Christians, well, our ownership changes. We are now enslaved by 
Jesus. That is who you are. That is whose you are. You belong to him. You are his property. But you're not just a slave. You are also a saint. Oh, if only they knew. Saint Hazy. Saint Jono. Saint Dave. I changed my email address. <laughs> You're a saint. But listen. <laughs> How come my laughter gets more laughs than my jokes? <laughs> you guys. Don't be obsessed with the title. The title, meh, who cares? It's what it means that matters. You have been made holy before God. You stand before God perfectly righteous. When God looks at you, he does not see you as the culmination of all of your sins piled together. I'm sick of you. That is not how God sees you. If you were in Christ, you were his righteousness. You are holy now and forever before Christ. That is who you are. And I want to say to you, that is absolutely critical for you to understand if you want to see transformation in your life. What do you call what we're talking about at the moment. I think the best word that describes it is reality. The invisible reality. Oh, you can't see it, but it's true. You can't, you can't feel it, but it's true. It's reality. It's how things truly are. And it's absolutely critical for you to be able to understand reality if you are to hope to navigate life wisely in order to make wise decisions, to live life the right way. If you can't see life for what it actually is, then you will pour your effort, your energy, your very life itself into things that do not matter at all. But when you do, when you do see the light of how things truly are, then and only then can you... Focus your attention on what matters most. Let me try and illustrate this. I've got a son called uh, Sonny. And, uh, several years ago, when he was around three, he loved to play hide-and-seek. And this is how it would go down. He'd say, Dad, I want to play. Okay. So he'd go into the other room. I'd count. Ready or not, here I come. I'd go in. And there would be Sonny. Literally the least hidden person in the world. Often sitting in the middle of the living room. You know, just, okay. However, Sonny was absolutely convinced he was hidden. Why? And I hate hide and seek, so I was happy to let him do it. I was like, okay, great. I pretended to look around the place, but I just sat down on the couch. It was wonderful. <laughs> Sonny was convinced he was hidden. He was convinced he couldn't be seen because I, he, he couldn't be seen because he couldn't see. But what was the reality? He wasn't hidden at all. Now, it's one thing to make that mistake when you're a child. People expect you to be an idiot. <laughs> but what if I was to do the same tonight? They can't see me. Something's wrong. This guy isn't getting it. He's confused. <laughs> Reality is critical for you to understand if you were to live life wisely, make wise decisions, pour your effort and energy into what matters most, if you were to actually experience the transformation you so desperately want. Reality and your ability to see it is critical. Why? Because who you are truly in the eyes of God is the most important thing about you. Who you are is the most important thing about you. And I want to say, of course, that runs completely contrary to the worldly wisdom that we're all immersed in. Worldly wisdom says to us, and we're all part of this, we all pick it up as we go along, and many of us are prisoners to this way of thinking, so, so don't miss this. Worldly wisdom says, you are what you do. 
So if you fail at life, you're a failure. If you succeed at life, you're a success. You are the, the culmination of your efforts, your energies, your, uh, your accomplishments, your, your, your endeavors. That is who you are. But the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ cuts through that fallacy like a surgeon's knife in the hand of a skilled surgeon and shows it for the absolute incoherent mess that it is. In Christ, do you not see? Who you are is not determined by what you do. What you do is determined by who you are. And who you are is not determined by what you do. Who you are is determined by what Jesus has done. Who are you, Christian? A slave to Jesus, a saint in Jesus. That's who you are. That's whose you are. And that is the compass setting, you see. The awareness you need to live life focused on what matters the most. So the key question for us then becomes, if that's who we are in Christ, if that's whose we are in Christ, if that's the reality that we all face as Christian people, what does it look like to live life wisely? What advice does Paul give the Philippian church about what to focus on to live life in, in uh, uh, the life of the transformed person, to live life focused on what matters the most? Well, Philippians, as I said, give it a read, seriously. Philippians is full of practical very helpful, not just advice, but direction about how to live uh, effectively as a Christian, how to see transformation in your life as a Christian person. We, don't, we certainly don't have time to cover even 1% of it. But what I want to do is have a look at verse 3 to 5, and what I want to do is point out just one, one thing that the Apostle Paul points Christian people to focus our energies on. One thing that I want you to hold of, I want you to have imprinted in your brain here, and focus on for the remainder of this year and beyond. Let me read verse 3 to verse 5. Listen and see if you can find it. I thank my God, Paul writes, every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The Apostle Paul does not pray to saints. He prays for saints. He prays with thanksgiving to God for the work that God has done in them and through them. He intercedes for them. He prays to God about them. But right in the middle there, what you see is the focus of life that Paul is most thankful for that the Philippians have been undertaking. You see the focus of much of the remainder of the book of Philippians right there in that little expression, partnership in the gospel. What does it look like to live life wisely in the light of the reality which God has revealed to all Christian people about our true identity? You are... A partner in the gospel. It's not just who you are, it's what you are to do. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that and thinking how uh, that plays itself out in our lives. So it's important that we're all on the same page when it comes to the definitions. What does it mean to be a partner in the gospel? Well, let's just step through it. Partnership. What's a partnership? Well, partnership springs from the same word as participation, which is a hint Participation and partnership spring from the same kind of root Greek word. Um, partnership with someone is very different to membership of something. Just say you join a gym. This might have happened to me before. You join a gym, you get the card, you get the tour, you're resolved, but you never go. What are you? You're a member. But just say you get the card, you get the tour, and you go every day for the rest of your life. What are you? A member. 
Now you can guess which one was for me. But either way, your membership of this corporation, company, whatever it is, does not depend on your activity, your, your, um, your involvement, your participation. No, no, no. So what is partnership? Partnership is the mutual agreement between a minimum of two parties towards a common outcome. Don't miss that. It's a mutual agreement between at least two parties towards a common outcome, a common goal, pursuing a, a common end point. It is not static and stationary. It is participatory. It is involved. It is active. To partner with someone is to be involved with them towards a common goal, a sports team together to, to see victory, a, a business together to see a revenue raise, those type of things. Those are things that are reliant on your activity. So Christians are partners with one another. Now, partners of what? Partners in what? Not politics. Not social justice. Not feeding the homeless. Not being a presence in our community. Those things are terrific sometimes. Sometimes not. Have a look what he says, verse 4. Verse 5. We are partners in the gospel. Now, do you know what that word gospel means? A lot of us don't, but we pretend. The gospel, you can say, oh, it means good news. Yeah, what's the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. That if anyone repents and believes in him, they can be saved. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixed it. That's the gospel. And you and I are called to be partners in it. Now, of course, in one stage, we already are. By virtue of being Christians, we are bonded together, partnered together through the blood of Christ. What bonds us together is thicker than the, the blood of family line. It's, it's covered by the blood of Jesus. We are brothers and sisters, and we will be so forever. So you better get used to me. You better get used to you and the person sitting next to you. But of course, partnership is partnership is involving activity. So what does that mean? Well, the apostle points to more outcomes at play than just our bonding together. There's two in particular I want you to pay attention to. The first one, well, you see it here in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. The first outcome of a partnership in the gospel is that we partner together for the benefit of each other. Now, who here has been blessed by a Christian before? Has anyone here been blessed by a Christian before? I'm so sorry to see that very few of you have been, or you're too embarrassed to admit it. If I was a centipede, I'd raise all my hands. I've been blessed by many of you before. We are called to care primarily for the household of God to seek the spiritual maturity and growth of one another, the advancement of the gospel in our own lives. How do we do that? We pray. We pray for one another. We don't just bring before the Lord our own problems. We pray for each other. We partner together financially. The end of chapter 1 tells us that we, we suffer together. We serve one another. We do these things to see each other grow and advance in our lives in the gospel. And I want to say there's nothing as precious as a Christian body of believers together, serving one another for the glory of God. You have been specifically gifted by God for the benefit of other Christians, which is why if you don't come to church, if you don't engage, if you don't involve yourself, you are robbing from other Christians what God has given you for them. But of course, make no mistake, if you take yourself away from church, well, you're robbing yourself, as God has given us specific gifts for the body for your benefit. My friends, we need one another. You need each other. We need each other. 
But of course, that's not the specific attention that Paul is drawing the Philippian believers to here when he talks about the advancement of the gospel, partnership in the gospel. It's not just for the, the spiritual maturity and health and advancement of the Christian, but also for the advancement of the gospel into the hearts, to the lives of non-believers. It's evangelism. We are called to partner together to see other people one for Christ. Now, what happens next in Philippians 1, I was about to show you. What happens next in Philippians chapter 1 is an incredible practical example of how this looks um, when it's played itself out. So I, I just want to show you uh, exactly how Paul shows uh, that this has worked out in his own life and the lives of others, uh, and then spend some time applying that to, our, to ourselves. But what we're about to read here is, is truly staggering. Let me give you a little bit of uh, more context. Paul, the great church planner who planted this church, he is writing this letter from prison. You might have noticed he talks about his own chains. He's in prison in Rome, and in those days, he wasn't just locked up. He was literally chained, shackled to a member of uh, uh, the imperial guard, an elite Roman soldier, all the time, chained to them. Now, if you and I were in prison for our faith, and we had the opportunity to write letters to other Christians, what would be the focus of those letters? Well, as I'm often reminded, I could whinge for Australia if it was a national sport. I assure you, I whinge when the Wi-Fi is down, let alone when I'm in prison for Christ. Goodness sakes! But don't miss this. What does Paul What does Paul do with his imprisonment? Look at verse 12, verse 13. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Can you imagine those Roman guards? Hey, Julius, who have you got tonight? That poor bloke, oh, not again. He just won't shut up. Paul chained to these Roman guards, evangelizing the very people who were holding him in a cell. But not only that, look, there's advancement. Some of them become Christians. Some of them have, have put their faith in Jesus. In a situation where most of us would take the opportunity for self-pity and for anger at God, he takes it as an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Now, it is worth saying, of course, that Paul is not an ordinary man. He's not an ordinary Christian man. Paul has had a bigger impact on human history than anyone else besides Jesus. He's the most influential um, non-God man who has ever lived, the great apostle. There's, there's never been another one like him. There won't be one like him probably until Jesus. There's no one like him. Very few of us could be expected to act the same way that Paul does. But this is what's so staggering. I want you to look at verse 14, and I want you to see what I think is on surface level one of the most confusing verses in the entire Bible. Listen to this. Listen to what verse 14 says. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What? The soldiers are not the only beneficiaries of the chains because of his imprisonment and continual evangelism. The other Christians have seen his example and grown in their own confidence. Their fear has diminished rather than being put off. Paul's imprisonment and evangelism grows their zeal. Now, I hope you see why that's confusing. Every study around about evangelism in evangelical churches, of which we are one, every study around the world, presents to us um, this undeniable paradox right at the center of evangelical churches, right at the center of evangelical Christianity. Here it is. 
around 90% of people who claim, when anonymously polled, around 90% of people who claim to be evangelical Christians say that they agree with evangelism. And they, they agree that they should be involved in evangelism as Christians, that it's something good to do. 90% have that conviction. But what percent do it? Around 10% actually do it. Huge disparity between conviction and action. Huge paradox at play. Conviction, want to do it, think we should do it, don't do it. Why? Well, why don't you do it? Well, I'm utterly convinced there's one word that defines nearly every excuse that I have for myself or that I've heard from others, and that word is fear. Is that right? What do you make of that? Fear. Fear of not knowing what to say. Fear of saying the wrong thing. Fear of not being prepared enough. Fear of of being unhelpful. Fear of destroying a relationship. Have you felt that one? Fear of looking stupid. The unspeakable fear of not being liked and humiliating yourself by doing this kind of thing. Fear is at the heart of what prevents us telling the thing that we actually want to tell. So how on earth does Paul's imprisonment, he's in prison for preaching the gospel, all our fears come true. How does that lead to the destruction of fear rather than its growth? The answer is not found in anything Paul or anything the fellow Christians do. The answer instead is found in what they see, or I should say, who they see. Look at verse 14 again. You'll see it here, I think. Who is it that the brothers and sisters become confident in upon seeing Paul's witness in chains? Not in Paul, not in themselves. Listen, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. They've become confident in the Lord, in Jesus as Lord. Why? Because as they saw Paul's continued evangelism despite imprisonment, and they saw more and more people converted, even prison guards come to know Jesus, they realised that what they were witnessing was not the visible eloquence of a powerful evangelist, the visible um, persuasion of an incredible preacher. No, no, no. What they were witnessing was the power of the invisible hand of God transforming life after life after life. And when you realize you have God on your side, what have you to fear? You see, my friends, yeah, when we're called to partner together in the gospel, yes, we're called to partner for one another, partner with one another, absolutely. But that is not the primary partnership we are called to as Christians. Look at verse 1 again. We are God's holy people in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven by Jesus. We are redeemed by Jesus, adopted into God's family through what Jesus has done. But also we are brought into partnership with Jesus. We partner together with God, God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit in proclaiming God's gospel to God's world. Our goals are His goals, 
That's why they're our goals. What we pursue, we pursue because he pursued it first. And I want to put to you that understanding this, listen to me, understanding God's invisible hand at work all the way through the proclamation of the gospel is the key to emboldening, the key to confidence, the key to zeal, the key to perseverance, the key to transformation in the life that you're living. Let me try and illustrate it. There was um, an old man who lived on the same street his whole life. Uh, a friendly old guy. And he was walking up it. And one day he was walking and he saw a young boy um, uh, standing on the curbside of a road with his school backpack on. Uh, and this guy's a friendly guy. So he says, oh, you're waiting for the bus, Sonny? And the guy goes, oh, yes, yes, sir. And he goes, well, mate, you've got four minutes till it's here. And this isn't the bus stop. The bus stop is 700 metres that way. Get to it. And the young boy said, oh, okay. And stayed perfectly still. The old man saw it and thought, oh, he mustn't have heard me. You're waiting for the bus, Sonny? Starts shouting the exact same thing. It's coming. You've got three minutes. Get moving. Uh, yeah, I heard you. Okay. Just stood still. The old man then got grumpy. Millennials, what's wrong with it? This generation, Gen X, Y, whatever it is. The worst in my day, this would oh, Suit yourself. Turns his back, walks off. Hadn't even gone five metres when he heard... To his amazement, he turns and the bus has pulled up, stopped and opened its doors. He sees the young boy getting on the bus. His mouth is open. What? But before the bus doors shut, the young boy turns around and says, Oh, mister, sorry, I should have told you. My father's the bus driver. It doesn't matter where I stand. He will always stop. He chooses where we stop. My friends, what does it mean for us that our God is our partner in evangelism, the primary partner of evangelism, the one who is in control? What did the boy realize that the old man didn't? He realized he understood reality. He knew what was real and what wasn't. He knew what would happen. He knew what? He knew that his father loved him, that his father cared for him, that his father would never abandon him, that his father would always stop <laughs> because he told him that he would. So what do we know as Christian people? When we're in partnership with God, well, we know that God will not leave us nor forsake us, that what we're involved in is what he wants us to do, that he is our partner in it. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means several things. We don't have to fear what people will say to us God controls how people respond. We don't have to obsess about saying the right thing exactly in the right order. We want to say the gospel clearly, but we don't need to study up on this philosophy and this other religion. No, no, no. It's God's gospel, not ours. We just need to do what he says. We can have confidence that no matter what reaction we face, no matter what response we face, it is not in vain. God may save that person. He may not, but it is not up to us. It's God who is sovereign over salvation. So when people reject us, when people ignore us, when people patronize us, we persevere. We don't read reality on the reaction of people. We read reality through what God tells us in his word. We know that the God who controls the universe is our partner in this endeavor and he can change anyone's heart. We don't see people as too far gone for Jesus. God loves to save people, and he has not stopped saving people. Do you know this last year alone, in 2022 here at EV, 
we saw 56 adults make professions of faith for the first time. 56. We saw 116 youth. I needed a calculator to add those up. It's 172. Then I had to divide it by three. That's three a week. How did that happen? Partnership. Partnership. It happened through one Christian knowing someone who wasn't a Christian and sharing with them either the gospel or the fact that they are a Christian. Then inviting or bringing them to meet other Christians who then partner together to share the gospel. That's how you became a Christian, whether you know it or not. Even if you became a Christian before, you remember it. Your Sunday school teachers, your parents, we partnered together. But none of it would mean a dime if God wasn't at work calling his people to himself. On the surface, what we're doing, what we're endeavoring to do, it could seem so small. And I want to speak to you tonight, particularly if you're on the Summerfest, the team starting tomorrow. Um, on the surface, what we can do, what we do can seem almost ineffective. We're just proclaiming the truth and, and kind of hoping for the best. But make no mistake, it is exactly that that God uses to bring people into his kingdom. Let me finish by telling you about Lydia. Lydia was a lady. She was an independent businesswoman, not a Christian. Um, and she lived in a, a medium-sized town. And, and every Saturday, she would go and hang out with some other uh, women outside a, a river near her, near her town uh, and talk about religion and philosophy and all types of things. Now, one day, they were doing that, and a group of people came and joined them and started talking to them about a guy called Jesus. If you and I were to walk past this event taking place, we would have just thought it was probably a picnic. Okay? We wouldn't have thought anything about it. We would have walked straight past. We probably would have completely ignored it. I guarantee you not one of us would have looked at that and said, oh my goodness, what's happening there is actually one of the most important and significant events in the history of humanity. Why? Well, the year that this is happening is around 60 AD. And the town that this is happening is Philippi. Now, you probably don't know this, but Philippi is in Greece. Greece is in the continent of Europe. That night, Lydia... She went to bed for the first time as a Christian. She heard the good news and she became a Christian. The first Christian in Europe. See, the, the people who came to speak to her, one was called Timothy, the other Silas, the other Luke, but the other one was a guy called Paul. Now Lydia, the next day, awoke and began to tell her family. And her family became Christians. The first Christian family in Europe. After that, it's all in Acts chapter 16. After that, a slave girl is converted. After that, a jailer, a prison guard is converted. And then the first church in Europe begins. Why is that significant? Well, my friends, from this one woman, Lydia, sprung a fire. A fire was lit. That spread on and on and on across the water to Britain and then across a big water to the United States, to Canada, to India, to China. But that came from other directions too. On the Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, New Zealand, and even here, the backside of the world. <laughs> Not many of us will be the Apostle Paul. None of us will be the Apostle Paul. But will you be a Lydia? Can you be someone who tells the people you love about the one who's transformed your life the most? Will that be you? Let me say to you that transformation in life is not easy. 
It's not fan through a series of actions and disciplines and whatnot. It's through fan and seeing the world the way God does, seeing life the way God does, that what matters here and now are many, many things, but nothing in comparison to eternity. My friends, I'm going to pray now. I'm going to pray um, in a few moments' time that our hearts will be full with enough love for God and his glory that we would be emboldened like these people to tell the people we know about Jesus, summer series, to invite them to that, to the life series in turn one, to invite them to that, to summer festival, invite them to that, to be involved, to partner together, to see souls one for Christ. Now, I'm going to invite the band forward now. Um, but as they do so, I'm going to give us all here a moment. And I, what I want to encourage you to do, Christian people here, is to think of two people. Can you do that? Two people who you're going to try and bring um, the good news of Jesus to this year. Two people. Can you do that? So bow your heads and let's think of those two people. And then uh, I'm going to close in prayer by praying for those people. Um, and if you're not a Christian here tonight, I'm going to pray for you that you become a Christian now and you put your faith in Jesus, repent of your sin and trust him. So let's bow our heads and let's think of those people. Um, and I'll pray in a moment. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and love in sending Jesus, your Son, to die and rise from the dead for our sins. Thank you that you partner with us in our growth, but also in the growth of your kingdom. You give us the privilege of proclaiming your gospel. Lord, this very moment we bring before you these two people by name. And Lord, we pray for your mercy to be shown to them that they will come to know and love you as Lord and Saviour, your Son, Jesus, as Saviour, to be adopted into your family. And we pray, Father, for opportunities for us or for other Christians to speak to them, to reach them. We pray that you would use us, Lord, to see the Central Coast one for Christ, New South Wales one for Christ, Australia one for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would um, bring your people to yourself. And Lord, for those of us here tonight who have not yet put their trust in you, I pray, forgive us of our sins. Realize that Jesus has died and risen from the dead for our salvation. Lord, let me grab hold of what you're offering, eternal life. Trust in Jesus now and forever. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.